This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Chang Ching, The Mystery Within, and the author is Fernando Bascunin, and Fernando joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Fernando. Hi, Steve. How are you? Fascinating, epic tale here. Adventure, fast-paced thriller. You have everything within a whole different culture, the Chinese culture, underneath the Great China Wall. So let me read what you have written, just to kind of set the stage. 2,500 years ago, a Chinese alchemist was given a very special gift from none other than aliens, four cosmic silkworms that when working together could bring great joy and prosperity. But there was a catch. If he proved irresponsible in his care, then a curse would fall upon him and his people even beyond their living days. Today, two boys have mysteriously fallen inside the wall and have encountered an underground civilization of living dead souls. So something went terribly wrong, didn't it? Well, it did, eventually. (laughs) Jesus, that that caught me. Where where can I get the book? (laughs) The curse came upon this alchemist and his people. So why write this book? What was the, where'd you come up with this kind of a high adventure? You see, Steve, uh, I mean, this is... This is really a very different type of story. It, 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 uh, its beginnings uh, come from a very different background than many people would imagine. Uh, I'm, I've been playing music for almost 30 years now, and uh, that wasn't an exception to this uh, inspiration. Uh, I, was, uh, I can remember way back in 94 when I was living in Spain with my wife doing my orthopedic residency program and uh i had a chance to write little some things out on my keyboard back there and that image uh, that that sound gave me a certain type of majestic uh guard uh asian type feeling that when put together uh when i decided to eventually make something bigger out of that basic idea and put that thought together it came out to become a certain part of a bigger story and uh i said what if we were able to take that asian uh atmosphere and from some from somewhere real back and put it up to date with somebody like snooping or spying on that old adventure so that's where the idea of these boys going back to a later civilization and taking a a very front uh, row seat on that uh, came about and uh i the rest was like putting bits and pieces together and uh sam the main character portrayed a very important role in my life when i was writing because i was inspired through his eyes and um i'm a very type of audiovisual type guy so it was really easy for me to see through him 
what he was looking at or living or his feelings and his thoughts of every moment he was trapped underneath that wall. So what general idea would best define the book's plot? Um, I guess it's uh, the best, the, the, the general idea that would define the book would be, uh, it's, it's, as you said before, it's, it's a fast-paced roller coaster ride for these boys underneath the wall. And uh, they're racing not only against time, but against uh, not losing their life in, in the process of uh, getting the proper elements back together. Because in order for them to resurface, they must prove themselves worthy of the task that they've been uh, brought upon to help these people also recover their and destiny, which is like uh, forever resting in peace, which is was obvious curse uh, brought about them for being so responsible and having lost these silkworms. So beneath the China Wall, there sleeps a serpent, a dragon. Oh um, no! Uh, there's basically one dragon, a big one called Dilong, which itself. Uh, seems somewhat mysterious to the own dwellers because uh, they only get to see it like every couple of hundred years or so. So they really don't pay much attention to it. But uh, the kids really spring up upon this dragon more times than they would have wanted to uh, for different uh, situations that occurred during the book. Uh, so it's it's not like only dragons. There are other beasts and other uh, types of uh, creatures underneath the wall. Some of them are mutant. Some of them have become uh, the way they are because of uh, uh, they've been adapted to that uh, circumstances. So there's a lot of different things that they come along uh, during their uh, stay underneath the wall. Now these boys, they are how old? They're 11 years old. 11 years young, and and they're going to learn a lot about certain kinds of virtues that some of your uh, themes that run through the book, loyalty, friendship, love, courage, commitment. I I enjoyed putting those ingredients together because, uh, you know, uh, especially Sam, he's lacking a lot of these items, and he finds himself like more on a Boy Scout type of venture. And he finds out very quickly that in order to succeed, he's going to need uh, the different virtues that come from Min, his sidekick. And not alone Min, but there's an, uh, an 11-year-old princess that lives underneath the wall who wants to play a fundamental role in their, in, in their help or their quest to, in order to regain these silkworms once again. So uh, they don't take very fondly the two boys into the princess by her being a girl and, you know, the obvious age in which they're in. And they're not very fond of girls, but uh, he really does uh, attach to her and to his friend. And this is a very emotional thing because I haven't left aside many psychological aspects of the book that people, older people, may enjoy. Not only the fast-paced adventure, but uh, these wholesome values are sprung up once and again. Uh, the alchemist, who proves to be somewhat like the, uh, if we might say so, the Yoda underneath that wall, 
plays an important father figure to both boys at a certain point in time. So it is, they are very important characters that portray more than what they just uh, seem to in, in the paper. Are you trying to send a message about Sam and how he might compare to youth today? Um, it's always good. I don't think I'm trying to send a message across directly, but it's always good for people. I think people need to know that there is goodness in youth. And, uh, and uh, when they're up about it, uh, they don't need a first-person uh, scenario. They don't, take, they don't need to take center stage in order to show themselves as actors, but rather uh, as kids would really play out their normal life and, uh, and aid each other in, in succeeding in certain goals. And that's what this is all about. I mean, Sam refines himself and, or redefines himself underneath this wall in a very special manner that... Um, it wouldn't have been otherwise. So it is a waking up experience for him, as it will be for his parents who have neglected him in so many aspects. I mean, uh, there's there's another very important issue that we must relate here that uh, the chapters are being told uh, very interestingly because uh, they're being, uh, they're being uh, played out uh, one uh, one moment you're listening to what's happening underneath the wall, and then the next moment you're up on on the wall with the fanatic parents looking out for for any clues that would bring them their kids back. So uh, there's a whole psychological thing, and uh, you see how uh, Mr. and Mrs. Evans, that's uh, Sam Evans' parents, uh, they're just frantically trying to get their kids back, and uh, they're just so remorseful of how they treated him in the past as like not being their type parents. They provide him with everything that he may economically need, but they're not really there for him. So that's something to take into consideration. So it's, it's, a, it's a thoughtful type story for those who really want to take those aspects into consideration. And for the, young, the younger, uh, they just take the wild roller coaster ride as it comes, and uh, they'll, they'll enjoy it as well. Because these two 11-year-olds, Sam being one of them, uh, really are just average, no superpowers. But, however, they do gain some incredible different gifts and strengths, don't they? That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, together they combine. They they are very uh, powerful. Uh, Sam... uh, Sam is uh, very supportive of his uh, innate skills as far as being a very witty type of guy. He He's able to make a uh, uh, brush fire with anything, uh, so to speak. And uh, Min is more of an intellectual type of guy who rids him off of many uh, tastes here and there and things that could really uh, take Sam or spin him off to, to a complete... Uh, uh, wrong direction. So it really, they really help each other a lot, and uh, they know for a fact that uh, their task is, is absolutely impossible without one another. Because they learn great power comes with teamwork. That's exactly true, and that's something that the alchemist, who's the person in charge of feeding them this information at the beginning, makes them believe that uh, together they will uh, strive and they will achieve and they will succeed. 
And uh, otherwise, uh, if they look the other way and they're so individualistic, uh, which is another aspect that's really very popular in the book as well. I mean, all this is a teamwork effort. There's, uh, I'm trying to uh, show this message once and again that there's nothing that's going to be achieved here unless it's been through hard teamwork and professionalism. And that's the only way things are going to be done. So uh, they do need to comply on one another. So who is the enemy, the evil enemy? Well, uh, the evil enemy here is Rente. Rente is uh, uh, Chen Gang, who's the alchemist, the apprentice. And, uh, well, he, he savored a little bit of uh, bad luck as well, because as you can see, he too ended up uh, uh, till the end of his uh, uh, days underneath the wall as well uh he's just a greedy selfish megalomani uh megalomaniac uh who's in love with himself and uh wants nothing but uh, everybody to look up on him so um he's he just wants the worst for his arch enemy who's who's his uh who was his um master of which would be Chen Gang. And uh, he, he'll stop at nothing to get that. So he has his own army. He lives in his own certain part. He, he made his own palace. He would be like the Darth Vader of the story. And uh, he's, he, he works a lot with black magic. And, um, yeah, he's that type of guy. And the dragon, of course, must uh, eat somebody, right? Yes, he does. Uh, he he comes up at, at certain unfortunate turns of events, and uh, the dragon itself, Delong, meaning the earth dragon, is somewhat that squirms and swivels underneath the, the, the earth's surface. So you're hearing this huge tremor coming about, and then he makes this huge hole underneath the wall. He's about two-thirds height and width, so he... He really is noticeable every time he surfaces. And he surfaces only because he's hearing uh, vibrations or strong vibrations on top of the wall that makes him come up and eat anything he's, uh, that's worth eating. And, uh, yeah, he does uh, come up in certain very important turn of events. And um, the boys are lucky to... to evade him once and again because it was, I mean I'm not giving anything away here but uh, it, it'd just be awful if if, if, if they weren't able to uh, succeed in, in encountering him once and again but they as I said before they do it with uh, with uh, their wits and very cunningly the title of the book Chang Ching The Mystery Within and the author is Fernando Baskunin and Fernando, tell us how to get your book. Well, my book is uh, is, is uh, wonderfully published through Author House, so you can get it at www.authorhouse.com, or you can go directly through my website, which I've really worked up a lot about, and I'm very proud, so that uh, readers and listeners can go and take a look at that. And that is www.changchangthemysterywithin.com. And through that side, you can also purchase the book, which will link you directly to Author House. And as I understand, yeah, we do have it through Barnes & Noble and Amazon and uh, 
many other publishers or online publishers as well. And uh, the book has been out since uh, July 11th to date, and uh, the number of uh, online publishers have been growing, so I've been pretty excited about it. Is this the beginning of any kind of a series or or additional uh, books well, from that's, you? That's uh, something I'd like, I'd like to keep uh, as a personal secret right now. Uh, I want to concentrate and focus on uh, changing the mystery within, and let's let the public uh, be our our guide that way. Uh, if they best feel that there should be something else, uh, why not? Uh, there's always room for more. Uh, I, I personally feel that there's a world of Chang Chang out there that's worth telling, and uh, uh, the stories are only conclusive if the author thinks that they are, and uh, I think that there's always room for more, so why don't we just keep that little door open, just Th in case. Thanks for being with us, Fernando, on well, a pleasure. Author Talk. Thank you very much, Steve, and, uh, and thank you and uh, your audience as well. I hope you enjoy the book as much as I, I enjoyed writing it. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. It's time to get your boots on. We're the Boot Campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Boys from the Hill. And the author is Bernard Salmon. And Terry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Terry. Hi, how are you? Well, an interesting true-to-life story. I think most of us who grew up in the 
40s, 50s, and the early 60s can really relate. And also young people today, because this is a story about boys growing up in the Bronx during the late 40s and early 50s, uh, can relate just because of the age group. But let me read what you have written about your book. The Boys from the Hill is a retro urban novel, a tale about a group of working class boys Growing up in the Bronx in the late 40s and early 50s, the story takes the young men from early adolescence to young manhood. It features, in particular, the lives of two of these boys who are close friends, Johnny and Tony. It centers on the street lives of the boys for a period of time, since they sink into fighting and violent gang activities, and eventually they survive these negative activities and grow into normal living patterns as they become young men. Now, that was the great story, I guess, of all of us that lived through the 40s and 50s, right? You know, I'm glad that you described uh, my work as that, because that's really what I had in mind. I just wrote the story because I I knew I wanted to do some writing, and uh, I finally decided on a novel to be set in the South Bronx, and about young people, and also about some of the troubles they could have gotten into. And uh, at the end of the story, there's actually even some tragedy in there. And uh, you've just given a, a good description of what I had in mind to do. Well, this is a time, a uh, simpler time than today, because we didn't have all the media like we have today, which dominates people's lives, especially young people. And so in this case... We're going to follow Johnny and Tony, two friends, close friends, right? Yes. And of course, exactly. they go down some different roads. So let's let's learn a little bit. First of all, um, you know, you've already mentioned the motivation to write the book in in a general. Uh, this is a, this is special for you because you've got a you've got some messages that you want to the reader to learn from? Well, you know, it's it's kind of strange. When I first wrote the book, I didn't think of it as a message, but I guess that w- was what was in the back of my mind because as, as I analyze it now, it, it surely shows that the decisions that people make, especially young people, have an impact far beyond uh, the actual events that, that they're involved in and they can affect their life in some ways, even tragically. So we are what we think, because usually what we think, we do. That's that's pretty much exactly the way I, I saw it panning out in the long run. That's how the story uh, came to be. Well, let's talk about some of the characters. Let's talk about a couple of the main characters. Uh, we have Johnny and Tony. Uh, tell us about Johnny. Well, Johnny is a guy who's uh, a little bit quieter than most of the boys, but he's he's definitely one of them. He's always in the middle of the action with them, but he's he's a little more sensible than most of them, and it turns out they actually kind of respect him for that because he kind of keeps them a little more level-headed than they normally would be. Johnny's parents came from Ireland, and you'll see a few other Irish guys in, in this book because basically that's my own background, and I felt more comfortable with that. 
but the neighborhood wasn't just Irish American people. It was the typical conglomerate that you have in a large city where there were many different groups and nationalities of people living there. And uh, Johnny doesn't have any brothers and sisters, and his mother and, he lives with his mother and father. His father is a longshoreman, and he's a little bit of a rough guy at times, but mostly he's just your typical good old dad. And his mother is a, a quiet lady who's who's a little bit religious, too. She goes to church a lot, and basically that's the kind of home he came from. Now, Tony, who's his best friend, his mom and dad are... Uh, were born in this country, their Italian parentage, and uh, they have a very happy home also. Uh, his mother is a very dominant woman in a nice way. She's just a lovely, warm, friendly lady. And uh, between the two of them, her and her husband, they really uh, provide a, a wonderful home for Tony. Uh, Tony has a younger brother named Joey. And basically, that's the setting that they're in. Tony, by the way, is is uh, is a guy who probably has a lot of talents. You know, he's he's a tall, good-looking young man, and he he and Big Red Crowley, who's another one of the boys, are more or less the leaders of their little crowd. So that's basically a good head start on on what the boys are like. And this environment. Uh the parents and the folks in the neighborhood. You're talking about uh, a real basic uh, status as far as economic. It's, it's uh, you know, it may not even be what we call today middle class. I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, you have a poor community? Well, it's, it's more or less, I think people in those days referred to them as the uh, lower middle class. It was working class people. They were not in dire poverty. Most of the people had jobs. They had enough money for a nice home, not a, you know, uh, a comfortable home. Uh, there was always food on the table. There was always a small vacation every summer, you know, I go, go away for a week to a local place. So, I mean, uh, these boys were, were beyond the dire poverty, but they, they still had working class mentality and they were not, uh, the Rockefellers, shall we say, and they were not, you know, professional people, their dads being lawyers or doctors. So why get involved with a gang? What, what was that just uh, cool, or you know how kids are sometimes? It wasn't anything serious. They thought. I think uh, there just seems to be a certain mentality in, in a lot of young people, and it was very prevalent at that time, and it, it seemed to grow more into the fifties and the forties. But you would hang around with the group of people who were in your neighborhood and. Some of the boys were very physically able, and uh, they just seemed to have more energy and not enough good sense, and they just wind up drifting into some foolish things at time. And that's precisely what happened with this group of guys. So more what they think is innocent fun can turn into pretty serious, uh, even uh, illegal, even crime. That's exactly what happened. 
and and as as you go through some of the things that they did, you'll see they were on the borderline of bad things and and even some bad things like in in one of the scenes or episodes they they sneak in the back uh, storage area of a bar. It's a, it's out in the open, and they they take a few cases of beer, and then they go into a dark. Uh, schoolyard and drink the beer and get a little bit high which they shouldn't be doing you know that kind of thing so uh as it's presented it's it's hijinks it's fun but uh as you indicated it's it's breaking the law and there's also as you put it some silly preparations for a gang war what in the world's going on well uh at the time especially when you got into the 50s. For some reason or other, there was a craze around New York City, and it probably was in other towns too, for groups of boys to have, have little gangs. Now, now these guys hung out and were a group and, and were sort of like a gang, but they weren't formally a gang. Now, some of the other groups were a formal gang, and the group that they had this little gang fight with uh, were a formal-type group, which meant they had a president and they had a another party who was called the War Council, and they were the two guys who would run uh, the gang, so to speak. Now, uh, these boys didn't have an organization like that, but they did have a gang, and, and more so than a gang, they could call on lots of friends from other neighborhoods around them, maybe a few young guys who were relatives, and uh, get a group together to have, so to speak, a, a gang war. And actually what what the formal gangs would do is they would actually specify what weapons you could use in the, in the fight. So so this was a sort of calm fight, no guns or knives allowed. So basically they would just use clubs and whatever, you know, their hands and whatever. So that that's what their little gang fight was about. And in a way, it was interesting. It makes for interesting reading, but of course, it, it doesn't make any sense as you look upon it as an adult. But uh, true to life, as we talked about earlier, that's what went on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, having read a lot about this at the time, the... Uh, Police then realized what was happening, and they started these gang units and people who would, social workers who would go out and try to work with the kids and get them out of that type of activity. I mean, but the, what they did wasn't right, but I mean, it doesn't compare at all with today's gangs, which are much more serious business and have a lot more violence, I guess, mostly because of the uh, prevalence of guns in our society. Of course, as these young men grow up, girls always become a part of this growing up time. Johnny and Tony, they meet two girls, and both have a, a different outcome. Yes. Well, uh, Johnny at that point had, uh, his parents unfortunately had passed away separately. So he was in kind of a low emotional state. And and what he did was, uh, despite the encouragement of, of his local priest to continue with school, 
he, he decides to quit school, and the priest helps him get a job down in the garment area, more or less, even though he worked for a handbag company. And uh, Johnny is, you know, he's, he's making out. He's at least can live. He keeps his parents' apartment. But, uh, you know, he's kind of depressed about that. And so a few years after his parents died, when Tony and he met the two girls, uh, he and his girl get very serious, and they go through a young love romantic situation, and they eventually get married. And uh, Tony is 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 in a similar situation with the girl that he met, and that he he liked her a lot, but and actually he was in love with her, of course. Uh, but what happens is Tony doesn't have, you know, he has a settled family around him. He also has goals in life. He just knows he wants to be more successful than he is. And he see, sees himself as having a dead-end job. He goes to college nights. He, he just can't take sitting in the class. And, you know, he, he was doing fairly well in college. So he quits college. He quits his job. And he he starts working with with a friend of his uncle's, who who runs a bookmaking operation. He's he's helping him collect the bets and things like that. He's also part time bartendering, and he has in mind to eventually get some fast cash so that he can uh, uh, buy himself a small bar and get into that business. Uh, what happens though is he also gets into card playing, and he actually makes money on that on a weekly basis but uh, you know no one wins all the time but he has a flair for that he's a bright guy unfortunately Tony decides that he can't get married at this time so he thinks it's best if he and his girl break up so they break up they're in the process of breaking up and that's when some tragedy occurs and that there's an argument with one of the people that he plays cards with a man a little older than him who's a pretty rough guy and is basically a local strong-arm man. And uh, their fight results in a tragic uh, happening that uh, causes a lot of trouble for Tony and his family. And basically, that's what the story is about at the end of the book. Right. Tragedy can always strike, and that is true to life as well. But as you've tried to point out in your book, especially for young people, I I get a sense that be careful about your decisions because bad decisions, like probably Tony made, can lead to bad consequences. I think that's that's true. (laughs) And the funny thing is about it, uh, we usually don't think about things like that when we're young. But it also turns out the people who make the best decisions usually lead better lives. Well, that sums it up very well. Very well, Terry. Uh, the title of the book, The Boys from the Hill, a true-to-life novel uh, written by the author Bernard Salmon. And he goes by Terry is his nickname. Terry, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, or also from uh, Author House. They have a site where you can buy it. And I think if we get some demand going, you, you, eventually you should be able to buy it in your local bookstore. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. 
Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed myself here. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of this book of poetry, The Black Cat and Other Poems. And the poet is Shahabuddin Nagori. Welcome to our show, Nagori. Yeah. Good to have you with us. Now, I want to read a little bit what you have written about your book of poetry. You say, the focal point of this book is a reflection of sensitivity. Love is a key component of many poems. Social issues and the occasional sadness that encircles human life are also highlighted in this book. The portrayal of poets' feelings comes through the exceptional descriptive. Not only does it paint a vivid picture of memories, it also allows one to virtually live the experiences Nagori acquired as an adolescent. The culture of Bangladesh and the love for the country is a critical factor of this book. Well, let me start with uh, a question about you as a poet, Nagori. Uh, you're a Bangladeshi poet. Uh, you speak uh, Bengali. Why do you think your poems will be appreciated in the international circuit? Um, well, Steve, uh, you know, I'm a poet from Bangladesh, and the poems are originally written in Bangla, our mother tongue. But uh, for the readers who are not Bangla speaking, this has been rendered in English. 
Bangla poems have been acclaimed globally earlier also. You know, Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore's monumental work, Gitanjali, was first written in Bangla, then translated in English and published from London. English, French, and Spanish are universally known languages. Poems, when translated, lost some quality. You know, it is known. Everybody accepts it. But still, the need for translations cannot be overemphasized. I do not think translation will stand in way of appreciation of real poems. International readers' community will come to appreciate my poems. I hope, as they have done before. But the main consideration is whether the poems deserve that. <laughs> exactly. You are called a poet with difference. Your style and poetic expressing are different. How do you build mm. your poetic empire? Um, for the last four decades, I'm associated with poetry and literature. I'm an ardent reader of contemporary poems. I try to understand how poetry is changing its course, its language, and its destination. But however, poetry may change. Its ultimate life is lyric and rhymes. Mm, with it added new technique, which is part of its mechanism, I always strive for new techniques, new languages, and new dimension in poems. Why are your poems mainly love-related? <laughs> love. Uh, I can say, everybody say love is one of the most common things in the history of poetry and mankind. And for good reason, it is one of the greatest and most basic human conditions. Just about everyone has been loved, loved someone, and has been in love. Naturally, poets have written a great deal on the subject. Love is poem, and poem is love. That is what I believe. Poem without love is devoid of any taste, like tea without sugar. Love does not necessarily mean a relation between man and woman alone. Love is eternal. It can grow with any object or creature. Steve, you know, I confine in my poems love for women and is dominant, and I believe love for a man or woman can find tune a poem. Love for women is not always blissful. At times, it is full of saddest thought, too. It may be easy to look around our world today, and we can see the appearance of chaos, difficulty, and strife. Yet, when we come from an open heart, we can also see our opportunity of love into balance, joy, harmony, and peace. This planet does not need more visions of desperation, fear, doubt, and hate. It requires an abundance of love, especially unconditional love, to heal and restore the beauty contained in every moment. This becomes the easier path once we take the first step and begin to share our love. So my poems are love-related, I agree. 
In one of your writings, you have said you have learned poems by reading and writing on poems. Uh, help us understand what you mean by that. Um, there is no limit to knowing. Only the grave is the last frontier of knowledge. That is why I always try to learn from the young as well as from the old. I enrich my knowledge through reading books, newspapers, and magazines. The internet invigorates me, and I go through the writings of native and foreign writers. I have learned poetry through patient study, and so I write poems. I try to understand the techniques of expressing my learning in a new form. If anyone asks me, just like you, why write poetry? I would answer in conventional manner. Poetry is a way of telling the truth, a way of being superior to others. This may qualify as an answer, but is poetry really always a way of arriving at the truth? Maybe it's a question. Does the poetry we read in newspapers tell the truth always? In the era of Aristotle, I can uh, give an uh, example here, when there was not so much analysis of poetry, it was said that poetry uses words in the fuller potential and creates representations that are more complete and meaningful than nature can give us in the bounty. Now, in these times, if you try to analyze poetry in similar fashion, will you get a complete and meaningful form? Steve, it is my opinion that when I try to write poems, emotions, theme, belief, and wholeness are combined in them. When I drag down the sky to the earth, I compose a symphony between the sky and the earth. When I illustrate the mood of moonlit night and raindrops, it is not for the sake of incorporating multispatial imagery. I rather try to make a sequence in order to construct a story. Poetry is like a tale, and after all, it should have an end. This tale is like a banyan tree, which has branches, leaves sprayed out at the vast compass outside the roots, deep inside. Now, you have graduated in zoology, and you've got a master's in etymology. Uh, you were a teacher in the university, and now you're a government officer <laughs> Can we say, after so many changes, that poetry is a matter of heart only? I have told earlier that I am linked with writing poems for the last four decades. It's a long time, by any standard. Poems are a matter of emotion, and I have never tried to hinder emotion. I have been at writing poems over the years of my formal education and profession. To achieve the goal, I had to be punctual, and I never allowed own field to overlap the other. I didn't want own will interrupt the other. That, that is easing my pursuit of poetry. At present, there is crisis of pure literature abroad. How do you look at it? Uh, commercial literature is on the center stage. Uh, can you comment on this? Um, of course, I can comment on it. In fact, um, such uh, uh, doubt and worry are understandable. In the years, uh, writers and the literature writing becomes more and more commercial. And some writers write commercial literature, or literature similar to commercial advertisement 
for gaining money and wealth. The readers may often be cheated by these roughly made advertisement characters in the so-called bestsellers in the process of reading. Globally, literary pursuit is now being hampered. Literature is now a commercial commodity. There are reasons also. World is now faced with economic depression. Fiction has instant market, poetry has not. Thrillers and detective novels are having heyday. J.K. Rowling, you know, of Harry Potter or Mary Higgins Clark, Roman Chatler, or for that matter, any contemporary popular thriller writer are not allowed even to return. As soon as they announce their intention to return, publishers come up with the idea of ghost writer. A popular writer who can milk money is not allowed to die even. This is the green side of present-day literary world. But in the long run, all these are passing phases. Only literature with literary value can stand the trial of time. Written literature is facing crisis abroad. Of course, today e-books are having a heyday. At this juncture, your book is out in print. Uh, is this not challenging for you? You cannot ignore science. It has made it demerit both. E-books are products of time and science. It can reach the reader in no time. But personally, I feel written books bring readers closer and closer. On gets the feel of the soul of the writer when on a reader's a hard copy. E-books are popular worldwide these days, but I feel it is only craze of time. Written literature will again get back its position. But I don't think the print book will disappear anytime soon. But there is an exciting kind of terror to realize we are navigating the uncertain waters of epochal change. It will stand the trial of time, and you have this challenge in your mind and get ready for the future days. You write in the language called Bangla. Your poems right. will reach readers abroad, across the world in translation. Will they get the real meaning, the real taste of, of the course. original? Of course. I've tried to keep the essence of my poems in translation. Those who have been associated with the task of mine, one of our most well-versed and Bangladesh anime awardee, translator Fokshu Zaman Chaudhary, others are Siddiq Mahmoudur Rahman, Faisal Latif Chaudhary, all renowned for translation, have taken good care of this site. I express my gratitude to them. I hope readers will not be deprived of the real test of my poems. Reading the poems of the Black Cat and other poems, they will get core test of my poems, I can say. Nogori, we have time for one poem that you might share with us. Uh, which would you like to do? What poem would you like to share with us? Uh, I want to recite my poem, Ocampo's Cheer. The cheer could not be taken to the door of the ship's cabin, as if a bedfoot truck is trying fruitlessly to enter an alley, master of the ship came and ran his hand on the chair, a mystical touch. With amazement, he looked back and stared at Gompo. How could a chair 
is so soft, dazzling burnish on its smooth wood, emitting light, ocean breezes playing on its handle, wooden chips were affixed dexterously by the artisan or else. Ocampo's kisses have fixed joints like nails, chairs could not be disintegrated, Ocampo requested. At last, the chair was taken inside, breaking the door. Master went back to his cabin, but he could not get relieved of the feelings of the thought. Like a boy on the water, he also floated on the wave of the sea. Ocampo alighted from the ship empty-handed, standing on the deck when Rabindranath waved farewell he found Ocampo left behind tons of love on his palm. Two months' memory now hangs in a white curtain in hundreds of frames. He felt his hand is very heavy. How could hand become so heavy? He couldn't stand a long time with his ill bed. Entering the cabin, he reclined in newly brought chair. Interestingly, the chair embraced him into its range as if it was waiting for this moment for long, for the next 17 years, would one didn't find any crevice in it. Thank you. Thank you, Nagori, for sharing with us. Uh, the title of this book of poetry is The Black Cat and Other Poems. And the poet is Shaha Budin Nagori. Nagori, tell us how to get your book. Uh, very thanks, very, very thanks to Author House to publish the book. And I hope the readers will get something new from this book. You can get the book in online and um, in the e-book and other uh, the soft cover, you will get the book. Uh, I request the readers, our readers, to go through the books and um, keep their comments in uh, online or in any manner, I hope. Thank you, Nagori, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, thank you.